This morning in your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts. We're continuing as we examine this wonderful historical narrative of the early church and the happenings of the early church. And and as a matter of introduction, I want to point out something that maybe you'd overlook, or I certainly would have, and not just been brought to my attention, but the fact that we are about dead center of this, uh, well, of the center, the middle of the book of Acts in chapter 15. Uh, we're right in the middle. And, and, and it's not just a strategic placement in terms of the pages of the, the book of Acts, but the message of chapter 15 is absolutely central to the message of the church. And, and it's the gospel. And as we focus upon the gospel and its very prevalent place, in the mission of that early church and in the mission of the church today, it's important that we understand how, how, how absolutely essential it is that the gospel be presented accurately. And that was the concern of the early church, and we'll see that unfold in these pages in the verses in chapter 15. The accuracy of the message of the gospel. That the gospel that is being presented is the true gospel. That the gospel that is being presented is the full gospel. And it is indeed the biblical gospel. And so the message of the gospel is a crucial uh, part of the mission of the church. And then also we'll understand the crucial role, important role, of the church councils that took place in the early life of the church. It was so important to our early church fathers that whatever they did, whatever they professed to believe, that it be absolutely biblical. We owe a great debt to those early apostles and church elders and then subsequent church fathers and then the the councils. There were some seven councils that the church called in strategic places to deal with matters related to the personhood of Christ and the deity of Christ, the 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 inspiration of Scripture, the, the very Scriptures that we hold and treasure. All 66 books were considered very carefully and, and, and given great scrutiny in prayer as as they were considered what portions of the writings that existed that that day were indeed inspired by God. And so what we have is the holy, inspired, living, inerrant, infallible Word of God. It wasn't a flippant decision that made that uh, determination. It was given very thoughtful consideration, prayerful consideration by very uh, gifted men and and very uh, committed men to the cause of Christ. And so this will you'll see unfolding in chapter 15. Before we move into chapter 15, I'll just quickly summarize. You'll recall that Paul and his, the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas had, had successfully completed their first missionary journey. This is the first time that the, that the message of the gospel has penetrated into pagan land. Up to this time, it's been in land uh, primarily in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, maybe Samaria, that was heavily influenced by Judaism and, and occupied by Jews. But as they moved into the region of Galatia, as we saw in chapter 14, we, we noticed that they were moving into a region that was a Roman province. Therefore, it was, it was very pagan and, and all, predominantly the people were Gentiles, with the exception of, of, of some few Jews that existed in those territories. They, they made the round 
as they went into Antioch, Pisidia, and, and Lystra, and into Derby, and then made their way back to Antioch in Syria, where they were launched from, commissioned from initially. Now, was it an easy trip, as you and I discovered in the previous chapters? No. They ran up against a lot of opposition. They were persecuted. You may recall that Paul was stoned by a mob and dragged outside of the city, thought to be dead. And praise God he wasn't. He dusted himself off and went right back into town, continued to preach the gospel, share the gospel. And and the the exciting and, and inspiring fact out of all of this is even though they encountered great resistance and persecution, God worked a miracle. There were great fruit of, of souls being saved. The Gentiles were responding to the message of the gospel. Souls were being saved. Churches were being planted. So when Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch of Syria and reported this to the church there, there was great celebration. They were celebrating that their missionaries had come home. Not only were they safe and sound, a little bit battered and bruised, but they, nonetheless they were back. And they were safe. They were also celebrating the fact that God had blessed the mission of that missions team. And there were, there were souls to show uh, for that. There were churches to show for that. So there was great celebration. Now you and I know that when the church is on its, at the top of its game and things are going good, that our adversary doesn't wait too long before he begins to reign on our parade. And the same thing there with that early church. It didn't take the adversary long till he wanted to stir up trouble. He couldn't stand the fact that the kingdom of God was advancing, the gospel was being shared, souls were being saved, and churches were being planted. Oh, he stirred, he, so he set into action very quickly. So I take you to chapter 15. And the first thing that I want us to see is how the gospel message is challenged. So early on, my goodness, this is still first century. We're only talking decades from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ or, or just a decade or so from Pentecost. And, and, and so soon, there's trouble. In verse, in verse 1 of chapter 15, let's read together. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, that would be the Christians at Antioch, Syria, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, I, I like how Luke, he's, you know, he's a Gentile physician, he's very articulate and probably polished. He, he just didn't say, man, they had a brawl. They had a knockdown, drag out, heated discussion. I, Paul and Barnabas heard this. And they were incensed. And so there's a great, great debate going on. And so, as in verse 2, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So as Paul and Barnabas are making their way southward towards Jerusalem, they don't waste a good campaign trip. I mean, my goodness, after all, they were very instrumental in, in, in getting the, the good news to the Gentiles. And as they pass through Phoenicia, as they pass through Samaria, these are areas where Gentiles have come to Christ. Who better and who greater to celebrate the, the conversion of the Gentiles in the pagan land 
than Gentiles back in the homeland who are now Christians. So there was great joy among all the brethren. So they were picking up momentum as they're moving from Phoenicia into uh, Samaria and headed towards Jerusalem. I imagine some of those people in that region were so excited about what God was doing through Paul and Barnabas that they probably tagged along. They wanted to go to Jerusalem too and see how this thing was going to pan out ultimately. In verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. So, in verse 4, it's, it's the congregation. Remember, the church at Jerusalem is the mother church. It's where it all began. It's where Pentecost broke out. It's where the, the first uh, apostles and leadership established the church and the first elders were appointed and the church is given its, its base. And, and it was always looked to as a, as, a, as a church of authority because the apostles were there. And the most seasoned elders were there. Those who were trained in the Word of God. So recently, they would go to Jerusalem. And so as Paul and Barnabas are sharing the good news of all that has transpired out there in the Roman province of Galatia with the new churches and the new believers, there was great great celebration among the church at Jerusalem. But, verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, these were Pharisees who indeed came to Christ by faith. They were steeped in their Judaism and the law, but nonetheless saw that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. So they they were saying, it, it, it is necessary to circumcise them, speaking of the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So first of all, I want you to see the gospel message is challenged from the outside, if you will. From the outside. And these are the, going back to verse 1. These are the, the, the Judaizers, if we could call them the Judaizers. In fact, they're referred to as the Judaizers. These, these are, are actually non-believers. Now, they're connected with the church. They're affiliated with the church. So much so that they felt comfortable to go to the church at, at Syria to almost impose upon that church their thoughts about the law. But the fact is, Judaizers were promoting a false gospel, a gospel of works. A gospel that basically said, to be saved, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to practice the law. And you have to keep all the dietary restrictions and all of the uh, the restrictions of the law. You've got to abide by the old legal system to be saved. So it's it's faith plus works. Where does that get you, folks, in the scheme of salvation? I'll tell you, nowhere but lost. But they were, they were in trying to impose this false version of the gospel upon the people. They were not true believers themselves. They couldn't accept the tenets of the Christian gospel, which simply said, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is a gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. They couldn't accept that, so they're trying to impose upon the early believers the gospel of works, and, and that caused a great problem for the um, church leaders such as Barnabas and Paul. You know, the scriptures warn us. Even contemporary 21st century Christians today, the church today, we need to be aware that there are false teachers. There always have been false teachers. You go back and look at the New Testament scriptural record, beginning with Jesus. 
Jesus warned in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 7, verse 15, He said, Beware, there will be false prophets. They will come, and they'll be promoting a version of the Gospel. They'll be promoting a version of, of the theology that is false. Paul warned about the false prophets when he met with the elders from the church of Ephesus there in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 Paul called the elders out and in that final farewell speech to those dearly beloved elders Paul warned them he warned them he says be on the alert be on the lookout because there are those false teachers and false prophets who are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing beware the apostle Peter also Likewise, warned the early church in Second Peter chapter two verse one of false prophets and false teachers. You say, but we're more sophisticated. We're more intelligent nowadays. Wrong. <laughs> we may be more sophisticated, and yes, through education, may be more educated. But the fact is, there are still false prophets. They're out there in the churches, they're out there in the pulpits, they're on television, and they're promoting unbiblical truths or unbiblical teachings that are not the truth, and people are being misled. If anything, Christians today need to be more grounded in the Word of God. If there's an antidote for false cults and false prophets and false teachings, if there's an antidote that's effective for the, for the prevention of falling prey to false teachers and false prophets, I'll tell you what it is. Dig into the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Show yourself proven. Understand what the truth is so that when something false does rise up, you'll say, wait a minute. That doesn't jive with the teachings of the Word of God. That's got to be false. That's not what Jesus says. That's got to be false. That's not what Paul said. That's not what Peter said. That's not what the Scripture says. And of course, the church has a responsibility in promoting the truth. But as we look at verse 5 in this development as they approach Jerusalem, and, and there it talks about the, the, the sect of the Pharisees, not only was the gospel being challenged from the outside by these non-believing Judaizers, but there were people who were on the inside of the church who had their own ideas. And these were the Pharisees, both Christian Pharisees. I want to emphasize that. They, they were believers. You know, it was easier for the Pharisees to become Christian than it would be for the Sadducees. Because the Pharisees, like Christians, believed in the, the literal truth of the Word of God. The Pharisees, like Christians, believed in life after death. The Pharisees, like Christians, believed in the, in, in the teachings about a Messiah coming. Whereas the Sadducees had nothing to do with any of that. And we know that there were Pharisees who approached the Lord. We know that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night. He was being touched by the teachings of Christ and the miracles of Christ and he saw in Jesus something he'd never seen even as a seasoned Pharisee. So from the inside, the sect of the Pharisees, Christian Pharisees were saying, we believe in, 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 in the salvation by grace through faith, but then after you're saved, after you're saved, it's very important that you practice the law. In other words, Christianity is a sect of Judaism. And so they were trying to promote that, and that is just as dangerous. You can't take away from the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. 
And you certainly cannot add to the gospel. The gospel is purely as the Word of God describes it. And so to try to add to it, as the Pharisees were trying, or the Pharisee believers were trying to believe, uh, add, was also a problem for the church at that time. And you know, as Christians today, we have to resist that temptation. If we're not careful, we can easily fall into the trap of legalism. Whereby somebody comes by faith, by, by grace through faith to accept Jesus Christ and they're saved. And we say, oh, well, we pat them on the back and we baptize them. And we say, oh, that's great and wonderful. Now that you're a believer, it's very important that you read the only translation that we read. And it's very important that you dress just like we dress. And it's very important that you show up for every activity of the church. And it's very important that you do this and do that and do that. Otherwise, you're probably not a Christian will doubt your salvation. Folks, we live under an umbrella of the grace of God. That doesn't mean that we take liberties and engage in sin. But the fact is, you don't add to the gospel. Praise God! Aren't you glad? I'm thankful that that I'm saved purely through my faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul sensed that this was going on with the Galatians. You may recall when Pastor Tim was preaching through the, the, the epistle of the to the Galatians. In chapter 3, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, to those Galatian believers. And, he, and, and listen to what he says. Verse 2, chapter 3. This only I want to learn from you. In other words, I, I want to know something. Paul is basically saying to the Galatian believers, did, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Folks, that'll get the attention of a Pharisee. You want to call yourself a son or daughter of Abraham, it's not so much about how perfectly you keep the law. It's about how strong and genuine your faith is in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel message, as early as it was in the advancement of the kingdom of God in the early church, was being challenged from the outside, was being challenged on the inside. And so the, the church leaders did what they felt in their hearts and were led by God to do. That is call a council. When in doubt... Don't go to the television and, and see what Dr. Phil has to say about it, or heaven forbid, Oprah Winfrey, or, or any of the so-called television evangelists out there. Uh, I call them dog and pony shows. Listen, listen. Go to the leaders of the church. Go to the ones that God has called up, that God has gifted, and that have committed their lives to reading the, and studying and understanding and teaching the Word of God. And that's exactly what the church did at that very pivotal time. They sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem where the apostles and the elders were. And we see the very first church council taking place beginning in verse 6. And I think it's so important to see in verse 6 
Whereas they gave their report in verse 4 to the whole church body. I believe all the believers were there celebrating. They heard these great reports from Paul and Barnabas. And they were cheering and celebrating. And then the leaders, the elders and the apostles says, Okay, folks, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I want you to see the picture. Basically, the church leaders said to the congregation, Okay, folks, we've got some serious matters to debate, to deliberate. If you'll excuse us. And I believe what you see happening from verse 6 on are the leaders only. Paul, Barnabas, the representatives that came from Antioch with them, the Judaizers, the sect of the Pharisees, the apostles, Simon Peter, James, the others, and the elders. So in verse 6 we see the gospel message defended. In this first church council. Look with me at verse 6. So the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. And made no distinctions, a distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples with which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You recall in chapter 10 when God led Peter to the coastal town where Cornelius lived, there in the area of Joppa. And, 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 God gave Peter a vision of all these animals coming down on this net. All kinds of animals. According to the Mosaic Law, most of them were unclean. And you remember Peter saying, you know, when the voice from heaven said, eat, Peter says, oh no, I, I can't eat. That's, that's unclean. That'll make me ceremonially unclean. And you remember in chapter 10 of, of the, of, of, of Acts chapter 10 verse 15 where God said what God has cleansed you must not call common. And Peter never forgot that. God led him to to the house of a Gentile Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And the Spirit of God came upon Peter such that he preached nothing but the Gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for the sins of mankind, buried and on the third day resurrected in the power and the glory of God, victorious over death as the holy, precious Lamb of God for the forgiveness of sin. And as Peter was finishing up the message of the Gospel, and the minute that he said, and to all who believe... That instant, the Spirit of God fell upon Cornelius and those in his household, and Peter says they were saved. <laughs> Peter says there's no doubt these Gentiles were saved. He says, I saw a pouring out of the Spirit of God upon these Gentiles like I saw firsthand at Pentecost. And he said there was no distinction. God didn't give them a little less than He did us. He said He gave them the same powerful spiritual experience we did to confirm that their salvation and they were not restricted by the law.
It had nothing to do with the law. So Peter is in, in, encouraging the church at this point to consider how it is looking at the past. And this is what, from the perspective of the past, Peter is looking back to that occasion in his own life where he had that encounter that God affirmed that the Gentiles could also be saved by the gospel of faith and not by the law, not by works. You know, it's important that we too, as a contemporary, as a, as a 21st century church, church living in this time, it's important that we also take time to go back and just what we're doing here. Walking through the book of Acts, folks, it's not just an exercise of, 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 of learning about the scriptures. This is important. It's important that we go back and look at the original blueprint so that we understand what does church mean? What is the gospel? How is the church supposed to be structured and organized? How does the church carry out its mission? What are we, who are we at, and what are we about? And not only that, beyond the Scripture, going back in church history, as I I shared, the important church councils, when the leaders of the early church came together to deliberate things as important as the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Jesus, the Scripture, the inspiration of the Scripture. Listen, it's important that we go back and we learn from those pivotal moments in the life of the early church. I appreciate Pastor Tim taking time to teach church history. You'd be surprised how many Christians in churches today have no idea, have no inkling of an idea of what happened after the close of the Scriptures in the life of the church. Centuries going down through the medieval and the dark ages and and, and, and through the the great uh, uh, reformation of the church. There's so many Christians that don't even have an idea of the great lessons that we learn from going back and learning from the past. That's what Peter wanted the, the council to consider that day, the church to consider, is this is what God did in the past. That substantiates that the gospel of, of grace and faith is sufficient for the Gentiles. But then also as we're looking in chapter 15 of Acts, and we're beginning in verse 12. It says, Then all the multitude kept silent. This is after Peter has charged them. And listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, then James speaks. In verse 12, not only do you have the perspective of the past by Peter, but you have Paul and Barnabas who are hot off the mission field. They, they, they are seeing God at work right now. And they're, they're, they're amen and Peter and said, oh yes, Pete, we, we're with you, brother. We know what you're talking about. And then they get up and they said, now listen, let us tell you what God is doing right now. We're not out there preaching the law. We're not out there imposing Moses upon All we're doing is preaching the gospel of grace and faith. And the Gentiles are hearing it. And, and, and Paul says, to substantiate that, God is doing miracles through us. Remember, we talked about the sign gifts. 
that God uniquely gave to those early apostles to substantiate that this new movement that many people call the way that we know as Christianity, God gave those apostles signs, great miraculous signs to, to, to raise the, the dead, to cause the lame to walk, to give the blind sight. Listen, God was manifesting the authenticity of the message through these miracles. And Paul is saying, yes, I was bitten by a poisonous viper. And listen, I lived. He said, listen, I raised a man that was, that was lame and never walked in his life. I gave him the ability, or God gave him the ability through me to walk again. Listen, the people know that God is at work. And then he says, not only that, but the Spirit of God is moving. The Spirit of God is moving. And it's good for us not only to look in the past to substantiate the gospel message and the authenticity of the Christian faith, but listen, it's important that you and I also look around us. I hope we can soon institute opportunities for for believers, Christians, church members, to just get up occasionally to, to share. When God does a great work in your life or through you, and you see the power of the Spirit working in you, folks, that's not something we keep secret. That's not something we keep to ourselves. That's something that ought to be shared with the body of Christ. Why? Because it instructs the body of Christ that God is still at work in our midst. He's not a God of the past only. He's a God of the present. I don't know about you. It really excites me. It inspires me. When I hear a fellow believer said, you know, I had a situation where I was praying and I didn't see any way out and I was trusting God and God delivered me through this. God provided for me. God did a healing here. God did a miraculous work here. Listen, I like to hear how God is working now because it substantiates what who God is and the message that we're promoting as the body of Christ. Testimonies can be valuable tools of affirmation for the church. But then also there's a future perspective. God's got it covered. Past through Peter, the present through Paul and Barnabas. But then, but then James stands up. This is not the Apostle James, because you recall earlier in the book of Acts, James was the second martyr of the church. James, the brother of, of John, the sons of Alphaeus, he, he, was, he was martyred. His head, he, he was beheaded. By Herod. This is not the Apostle James. This is James, one of the elders of the church. And scholars say that this is probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. Interestingly enough, initially wasn't a believer. Isn't that something? Be Jesus' kid brother and not be a believer. Well, the fact is, most of his family... Before His resurrection, we're not. But after the resurrection, things changed. James became a very committed and avid believer. And not only that, a leader in the church. James also gives to us the epistle that we enjoy, the the book of James. And so it's this James, a highly respected elder in the church, who stands up before this first council and I thought it was so interesting because James is not speaking for the past. He's directing, he's not speaking to the present. He's directing their attention to the future. Look at verse 13. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out them, take out of them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, and he's quoting out of Amos, the prophetic book of Amos in chapter 9, verse 11. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. James goes on in verse 18. He says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled, and from blood. And I'll explain that in just a moment. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Let's stop there for a second. I want you to see what James is saying. He says, sure, we have the, his- we have the history of what Peter said happened in the past. We've got the accurate account that Paul and, and Barnabas have d- d- shared with us of what God is doing right now. But he says, let's not forget what the words, what the prophet said. The prophet Amos said, that God said through him, when God says, I am going to reestablish my kingdom. Even though my people be in captivity, God says, there will come a day that I will establish my kingdom. And I will send my king to sit on the throne. And I will raise up for myself believers, certainly of the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, because God made a covenant with Abraham. But, but, but James picked up on what Amos was saying about the future. He says, and the Gentiles will be a part of God's people. God will call certain Gentiles and He will give them a gospel whereby they can come to Him through faith, not by the law, but purely by faith, by the grace of God. And so James says, even the prophets looking into the future demonstrate that the gospel message of grace and faith is a way for Gentiles to enter into the kingdom of God and to be a part of the people of God. I don't know about you, but I celebrate that fact. If you, unless you are an ethnic Jew, a biological descendant of Abraham, you have every right to get excited at this point. Because for those of us who are born again believers in Jesus Christ, having received the grace of God, and through faith in Jesus Christ are Christians, that's us. We be Gentiles, folks. And we're in. Not because we read and practiced and adhered to the law of Moses, but by the grace of God. And through our faith. And that alone. And that's what James is saying. Leave the Gentiles alone. Don't add a burden that God doesn't call for us to put upon their hearts. And, and church, let's do the same. When we go out to share the gospel, listen, we're not out there to, to, to proselytize people to be Baptists. Listen, that's secondary. The main thing is that we tell them the truth. 
that they understand that they're lost in their sins and that they're they're headed to hell and there's only way one way whereby they can be forgiven of their sins and adopted into the family of God and saved from the eternal penalty of their sins and that is through Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't care what church they belong to or choose to join as long as it's a Bible believing and teaching church. Don't add a burden. So we see the gospel that has been challenged. We see the gospel that has been defended. And now, as we close, I want you to see in the rest of this portion of the scripture, the gospel message is confirmed. Look at verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders. Now the church is brought back. They've made their decision. They bring the congregation in now. They want everybody to be aware of the decision and the celebration. Then it pleased the apostles and elders elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So two of the representatives of the church go with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch of Syria. And they go with a letter. You see, I think it's important because the church, in confirming the message of the gospel, we see that the church acts to protect the integrity of the gospel. How do they do that? They're not going to take any chances. They're sending a written letter, probably in the hand of of the elder James, maybe with the signatures of Peter and other apostles. But they send a letter. Not only do they send a letter of clarification, but it's a a letter of affirmation. Listen to what James is saying, or whoever wrote the letter, to those those Gentile believers in Antioch. These are the Jewish believers who are writing to the Gentile believers at the church at Antioch. Listen to the language. They wrote this letter by the, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Did you get the language? They say, hey, you Gentiles. Brothers. I like it when somebody calls me Brother Charlie if they're a Christian because I love this concept of being a part of the family of God. Please don't get offended if I call you brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. I love the idea that we're not some institution. We are a living, dynamic body who has Christ as a head. And as members, we are brothers and sisters. This past Thanksgiving, I had the opportunity to go up and spend a couple of days with my dad. And a lot of my family came in. Those of you that are guests and don't know me, I come from a family of 11 children, so you multiply that by spouses and, and offsprings, and needless to say, the hotel was quite full. I was wondering if I was going to have to sleep out there in the car shed, but it was kind of chilly. But the fact is, you know what? The more people we packed in there, the more fun we had. And that's the way it is with the family of God. I love coming together with the body of believers. I love traveling to, to, to Poland and to, to, to London and to California with a group of 88 other pastor brothers from other denominations from all over the country. Listen, there was a cohesiveness in our midst. We were praising God together. We were worshiping God together. We were praying together. Never, never seen each other prior to our being thrown together for this tour group. And yet, there was a bond there that superseded any kind of secular bond you could ever imagine. It's called the brotherhood, the sisterhood of Christ. 
It's the body of Christ. And that's what the church at Antioch, at, at, at Jerusalem, wanted the Gentiles, who you can imagine, the church at Antioch was waiting on pins and needles. What are they going to say? What are they going to say? What if they come back and say, we've all got to be circumcised and go practice all the dietary restrictions and be a good Jew? What, what are they going to say? Can you imagine the, the immense relief that flooded their hearts and their minds when they unfolded that scroll and they saw James's signature and they were saying, Dear brothers, we're in! We're in! We're one of them! So it was not only a letter to clarify the gospel, but it was a letter to affirm. And they did that not only through sending a letter, but sending an impressive and representative delegation. And that was the two church leaders that accompanied them. Why did they send two other leaders? Because the Judaizers had, had Paul and Barnabas simply come back to uh, uh, Antioch of Syria and said, now listen, this is what the church said. You know what the Judaizers said? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's your word. But you see, the church leaders knew that. And they had Barsabas and Silas, two highly respected church leaders, to go. And when Paul and Barnabas presented the letter and the report and the clarification that the Gentiles didn't need to go through the restrictions of the law, listen, those two men said, yep, that's the way it was. That's the way it is. That's the truth. The church not only acts to protect the integrity of the gospel, but the church acts to preserve the fellowship of believers, affirming their spiritual kinship, which I've just shared by calling them brothers. But then, I'm sure, as I was, when you saw the wording of of James in verse 20, why, why did he tack on? He, he basically said, look, you're not under the law. Grace. But then, but then he goes on, he, he says some things that probably to us wouldn't make sense. Why did he go further with the Gentiles and say in verse 20, but we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And this is, this is included in the letter, letter beginning in verse 24 on. Why, why did James add this on? Well, in fact, let's go back to verse 24. I want you to see the rest of the letter. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, these Judaizers don't represent us. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by the word of mouth. In other words, to substantiate Paul and Barnabas' rendition of the the, the outcome of the council. But then, verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these you will do well. Farewell. Why? Because the, the church leaders understood that the Gentiles would not be under the restrictions of the Mosaic Law. However, they would encounter unbelieving Jews who they would hope to reach. And the last thing you want to do is do something that would absolutely... Uh, offend them. And to a dedicated Orthodox Jew, idols, anything 
referred to an idol would be highly offensive. Anything that, any, any meat that was offered to an idol then sold in the market, if, if you tried to introduce that to a Jew, and, and let me just go a step further, not just the Orthodox Jews who were unbelieving, but some of the, some of the Christians were still practicing Jews. In other words, they, they were born again believers in Jesus Christ, but by their own volition chose to carry on some of the Mosaic traditions. And so to keep the peace in the church and to enhance the fellowship lest these liberated Gentiles would do something like try to invite a, a, a Jewish believer over for dinner and, and, and they have this delicious roast sitting on the table and they dig into it and they say, by the way, which grocery store did you buy this at? Oh, we didn't buy it at a grocery store. We just got it in the marketplace. It was on sale because it had been offered to Jupiter. And they go, oh, gag me. Or, or if, and James says, don't, don't offer meat that has, you know, that, that has blood. In other words, sometimes people didn't take the necessary steps to make sure that the blood was drained from the animal once it was slaughtered. Because you see, to the, to the believing Jew, to the practicing Jew, and even to those practicing Jewish Christians, blood was sacred. You remember that from the teachings of Deuteronomy? It, blood was sacred. It was life. And here, you see, I grew up in the, in the country and we cooked our meat till it was charcoal. Then I met my lovely bride from up in the north and, you know, they had a little different way of preparing meat. And I'll never forget the first night I went over for dinner and her mother came in with this beautiful, gorgeous looking roast and set it on the table and they sliced it and that thing began to bleed. I thought, Lord have mercy, put a tourniquet on this thing. <laughs> I was thinking, didn't you cook it? <laughs> I, you know, I, I know what to think. But then I came around, so we're medium rare now. <laughs> but, but just even with that, but, but to a Jew or a, a, a Jewish Christian, that would have been insensitive. So, so James and the leaders are giving some very helpful tips to the Gentile believers. Look, if you want to stay in good fellowship with your Jewish brothers, here are some things. Don't offer anything that's been offered to an idol. Certainly make sure the meat's cooked well and there's no blood in it. And, and, for heaven's sake, be sexually pure. You see, the Gentiles were coming out of pagan backgrounds. They were used to temple prostitution. They were used to all kinds of illicit sexual relationships. Adultery was nothing. Fornication was nothing. And now they're coming into Christianity. And then the Jews were very, you know, tight sticklers on, on being, you know, pure sexually. And, and we as Christians certainly ought to as well. So, James is, is, is advising those early Gentile believers, you know, don't, don't, don't be flaunting yourself out there and be loose sexually, or you're going to offend a lot of your Jewish Christian friends, not to mention the others. So the church has taken great steps to protect the integrity of the gospel, but also to promote the unity of the church in good fellowship. Good lessons for us to learn today. Good lessons for us to learn today. Make sure that what we teach and practice is truly biblical. It's absolutely true. Don't buy into some contemporary notion just because the culture is pushing it. Folks, we, we have made a determination as a church to resist the, 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 the entrapments and the lures of, of, of so-called cultural Christianity. We need to stay strong to that commitment and to make sure that what we practice is biblical Christianity. 
Nothing but what the Bible prescribes and solid church history substantiates. But do also promote unity in the church. Be aware of other people's likes and dislikes and, and not always be so self-centered and selfish and, and, and always looking for what is going to make self happy. But Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 2 and 3, you know, that we should be humble and always look out for the needs of others first. And that was the lesson of the early church. These are lessons that we can learn today. These are valuable lessons given to us right out of the pages of the Word of God. The church loved the Gospel because the Gospel was at the heart of what the church was all about. And when the Gospel came under attack, the church was quick to defend the true Gospel and to promote it as well.